0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: So glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Very glad you're with us. Your stool is ready. We've got good, bad, and exciting martinis today. So we're going to be talking about Jim's new book a little bit later in the podcast. We're brought to you today by Tommy John. Tommyjohn.com slash martini. We'll be talking More about them in just a little bit. But uh, Jim, let's get to our good martinis. And one of the things we've been talking about a lot for the last several months is use good judgment in deciding how you're going to conduct yourselves in the age of the pandemic. There are smart things to do and maybe some more risky things to do. But it's not the job of the government to come barreling into your home to tell you what to do. And so our good news today is that four sheriffs now in New York State have basically told Andrew Cuomo to go pound sand because in addition to magically thinking coronavirus spread will stop after 10 p.m. at bars and restaurants and gyms, uh, Cuomo has said that he doesn't want any gatherings larger than 10 people. Uh, Other governors have said no more than two households together for Thanksgiving or any other gathering, and uh, some have threatened to actually enforce this. But sheriffs in New York State are pushing back. It started with Fulton County Sheriff Richard Giardino, who said this on the Fox News Channel.
0: The Constitution is very clear
1: under the 4th, 5th, and 14th Amendment that you're entitled to due process before we take away your liberties or rights. And in this particular case, when we go into somebody, when when you try to authorize by executive order that we can come into somebody's house, count the people, and take some sort of action, that, that remedy is greater than the wrong of having people gather because, frankly, I have faith in people in my community to use their intelligence, what they know about the COVID, and make a determination based on the family members who may or may not be in the risk categories. And so he's got a background as a prosecutor, as a judge, and now a sheriff, so he thinks uh, it's impossible for him to uh, defend this in court, not that he would want to anyway. And three other sheriffs, Washington County, Saratoga County, And Erie County have also said the same. And Jim, we've talked about this in the past, I think with California and there, you can't sing loudly and things like that. I mean, who's actually going to enforce this? But not only is it important not to enforce things that you have to think fly in the face of the Constitution, but it's good to have these guys come out and say it publicly so that the public knows that they actually do have rights and that the government is overstepping here, regardless of what you think might be a good idea. the government has no business telling you how many people should be at your table on Thanksgiving or any other day.
0: Yeah. Look, my general attitude is if there is a law on the books, it should be enforced. And if it proves impossible to enforce or impossible to enforce fairly or creates a lot more headaches and, and, you know, uh, meaningless lawsuits and and all sorts of stuff like that, well, then maybe that law really shouldn't be on the books. Uh, Not too far from where you and I are sitting right now over in Arlington County, the uh, county board in all of its wisdom decided that, well, Anybody gathering in more than groups of three, even outdoors, is at risk of spreading the coronavirus and that you can get a citation for walking down the street as a group of four. So, uh, you know, Greg, you and I both have two kids, so somebody's got to be left home. That's that's the rule <laughs> that they had there. You know, I went back and I checked. A couple months later, nobody had been given a citation. They actually had, you know, not a single cop had said, you know what? Aha, look, a family of four. I better write up a ticket for that, you know, uh, in part because the process of going up to a group of four people and writing them a ticket, then turns it into a group of five people, which makes it even worse. So, <laughs> Look, I, I understand state and local officials are really worried about the rise in cases. We know that a rise in cases usually leads to a rise in hospitalizations, and a rise in hospitalizations usually leads to a rise in deaths. So I understand why they want to do this stuff. But before they just enact things willy-nilly, and remember, this is not going through legislatures. This is not advice and consent. This is not two groups of... Uh, two branches of our government working together to find the right solution. You know, this is just, you know, I'm a governor and I'm going to say we're going to do this. And by the way, Greg, let's observe that this odd conflict between, for years, we've been hearing a push for criminal justice reform, anti-recidivism, the idea that when someone violates the law, uh, we don't necessarily want to lock them up and throw away the key. Most people are going to, who end up going to prison are going to end up being released someday. We want to help them be law-abiding, productive citizens after that. Except for this coronavirus thing, Greg. All of a sudden, it's lock him up. All of a sudden, you know, Cuomo was like, "Law and order." You know, we go, "Officers, arrest that man." Um, look, in New York State—they've got enough real crime to worry about. They don't need to run around, as he said, counting you know cars and driveways and stuff like that. And this is a—if um, Cuomo wants to say getting together for Thanksgiving is a really bad idea. You might be fine, but you might be asymptomatic. The last thing you want to do is give it to grandma and grandpa or uncle Fester or or anybody else like that. I guess it's the Adams family that's getting together. (laughs) Um, You don't want to be in a situation where you accidentally spread it. And, of course, it's Thanksgiving. Everybody wants to get together. We've had a really lousy year, a really good, wonderful Thanksgiving where we all get together. We're close. We enjoy some good food. We watch the Lions lose you know, maintaining those traditions would be wonderful. And unfortunately, we're not quite out of this. We talked about the, uh, the vaccines earlier this week. We're getting there, but we want people to be careful. But Andrew Cuomo has managed to do the wrong thing at almost every step of this pandemic, which, you know, including going on a way too early self-congratulatory, largely false book tour. Um, but now, you know, the, the idea of, you know, telling the cops to enforce, you know, the restriction of no more than 10 people to a house Um, it's kind of absurd on its face. So good for these cops for pushing back on this. At some point, the edicts of the governor have to run into what is actually uh, feasible, plausible, and uh, consistent with the constitutional and and, and the rights of the people.
1: Yeah, absurdity needs to be called out. We like to think we do that quite a bit here at the Three Martini Lunch and good on these sheriffs for doing it. I'm sure they'll get some blowback from Albany, but uh, uh, you got to do what you got to do. And Jim, I'm just imagining three guys in the prison yard and, hey, what are you in for? Murder? What are you in for? Aggravated assault? What are you in for? I had 12 at Thanksgiving. (laughs) Well, we hope you have a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving, and we hope it's a time of thankfulness uh, for, for making it through this year and for all the other blessings in life. And uh, you also just want to take that time to relax, hopefully with some family, if, if you're able to do that. Uh, but you also just want to be comfortable. And uh, while you don't want to get ahead of Thanksgiving with the Christmas shopping season, it is kind of upon us. And one of the places you might want to look to stay comfortable as you're lounging around watching football on Thanksgiving or Christmas, New Year's, uh, the NFL playoffs coming up, whatever it is, uh, Tommy John has everything you need to stay comfortable comfortable while you're doing that. Uh, This Black Friday, you can fight the cold with cozy in Tommy John underwear, loungewear,
0: pajamas, and bras. You know, the great thing is you don't even have to wait for Black Friday to shop the Black Friday sale. If you shop their Black Friday sale right now, you can give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list and yourself with Tommy John men's and women's loungewear. Say goodbye to those old stained sweatpants, and let's face it, we've all been spending a lot of time in sweatpants this year. Tommy John loungewear is luxuriously soft and guaranteed to fit perfectly, with the same level of comfort and innovation that goes into everything Tommy John makes. Plus, Tommy John's loungewear, pajamas, and underwear come in limited edition sets, Perfect for gifting, but they sell out quick, so you'd better order soon. And I've
1: had the opportunity to get some of the Tommy John products as a result of us having them as a sponsor here on the Three Martini Lunch. Super, super comfortable. They have this this fabric they call micro-modal. I have no idea what goes into it, but it's the softest thing I've ever felt. Uh, I've got the t-shirt, the lounge pants. I could live in the lounge pants and not just because it's uh, a pandemic year. Those things are super, super comfortable. Uh, The underwear is very comfortable as well, and I think uh, you're not gonna be disappointed with uh, Tommy John. And guess what? Even if you are, you're covered, but you're not going to be. There's no risk though with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So shop Tommy John's Black Friday sale right now to make sure your gifts arrive by the holidays. Go to tommyjohn.com slash martini for 20% off site-wide. Get 20% off for a limited time only at tommyjohn.com slash martini. tommyjohn.com slash martini. Go to the site for more details. All right, Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now. And when Democrats get control of things, they like to spend a lot of money. They like to create new entitlements. And if we are, in fact, headed for a Biden administration, which seems likely, obviously, we're already talking about the next entitlement program, and that is student debt forgiveness. Uh, Over at CNBC, they've got the story, and this kind of comes in two phases, It says student loan borrowers hoping for forgiveness were given some hope with the election of Joe Biden on the campaign. Biden said he would forgive $10,000 in student debt for all borrowers and the rest of the debt for those who attend public colleges or historically black colleges and universities and earn less than $125,000 a year. So if you don't make that much money, and you go to a public school or an HBCU, your college is free, according to the Joe Biden plan. Uh, and so Chuck Schumer, in addition to that, Jim, believes that uh, Biden, assuming he becomes president with a stroke of a pen, wouldn't even need to run it through Congress, can forgive $50,000 of student debt and, and that, uh, that wouldn't have to go through legislation. So regardless of who controls the U.S. Senate. So I know we're in this era of the executive is not checked very often by the legislative branch, or at least not as much as it should be. But uh, there's a lot of reasons this is bad. But uh, what do you think is the worst aspect of this? And what do you think of the Democrats possibly putting this right up
0: front? Well, I think it's, it's, it's rather revealing that Chuck Schumer is the first out of the gate and is pushing for this. You actually haven't heard as much from Biden himself, we're not hearing much of anything from Biden himself, and I think there are enough Democrats who are wise enough to realize, if you turn this into the first major fight of the Biden administration, this it's a bit like Obamacare. It's a bit like, uh, it's something that's much more partisan, because a lot of people pointed out that you know when, when Obama you know, passes stimulus, so he doesn't get a lot of Republican buy-in, and then they had a choice. They could do infrastructure, which Democrats have been talking about for a long time. We've seen a million and one speeches about our crumbling roads and bridges But the thing is that Republicans like building roads and bridges in their districts, too. So you had a chance of getting some Republicans to buy into that. Or you could go with Obamacare. And everybody could kind of tell from early on the odds of getting a Republican buy-in on Obamacare were always going to be pretty unlikely. This would be a much more partisan fight. And Republicans would have a fairly strong argument to say, look, what you're doing here is you are punishing the people who saved. You're punishing the people who paid back their loans. You're punishing the people who did the right thing. And you are rewarding the people who did the wrong thing. And in fact, you know, people on the campaign trail, I think a voter came up and asked this question of Elizabeth Warren and said, you know, if you do that, you're, you're, I, I saved my money. I worked my way through college to pay this stuff off. If you just if, forgive all the debts, aren't you punishing me? And, and Warren just kind of laughed at him. And he did not respond well to that laugh. And it was, you know, there's a great col- uh, uh, column over in City Journal that basically makes the argument of when government pursues policies like this. They effectively create chumps. They effectively say. And when we went through this, ironically, going back to uh, the early Obama days, think about Rick Santelli and and you know him yelling on the, sh- the floor of the Chicago was Board of Trade, uh, the argument of you know the government's going to step in and pay the mortgages for people who had bought more house than they could afford. You know, you create this moral hazard in which you basically say, well, if you did the right thing, we're not going to help you at all. But if you did the wrong, if you found yourself in a really bad spot because you took out a loan and had no idea how you're going to pay it back, and you you know, in some of these cases, it's probably a genuine tale of hardship. And in other people's cases, they majored in basket weaving and did not select an education that is likely to get them a job or they have an easy time paying back these loans. So, you know, in this situation, uh, the you know the Democrats are in a very strange way potentially reenacting the exact same mistakes that set up the Tea Party back in uh, 2009, 2010. This notion that, hey, we're the government and a significant jurist, you know part of people who are who generally vote for us, they made bad decisions, so we're going to take money out of the general treasury and reward them. Uh, Damon Linker, who's a colonist for the Lincoln, who's by no stretch of the imagination a right-of-center figure, said earlier this week, Dems are wildly underestimating the intensity of anger that college loan cancellation is going to provoke. Those with college debts will be thrilled, of course, but lots and lots of people who didn't go to college or who worked to pay after debts it's gonna be bad. And it's really kind of fascinating that uh, you know, he, he's gotten quite a bit of pushback. You know, people say, ah, oh, you know, and he's kind of, you know, as he kind of said earlier today, I, I really predicted how part of the electorate will respond to the enactment of a progressive policy. And people are giving him enormous grief for having for observing the obvious. A lot of people are gonna be furious about that. By the way, this is also by really taking money from taxpayers, handing out to people who have made bad decisions, There are other ways to help make college affordable. This, by the way, gets colleges off the hook for charging enormously high tuitions in order to give students degrees that did not prepare them for the workplace or did not prepare them to get jobs that would pay enough where they could manage to function with these loans. I don't think Biden's gonna go down this path. And if he does, it will sour his administration before it begins. It'll make things incredibly division. And oh, by the way, I'm not sure the Democratic base would love this. Some of them would. Obviously the ones with student loans, but you know, generally if you went to law school, you're probably doing okay. You're probably doing better than a homeless person. You're probably doing better than a person who's uh, struggling to keep the electricity bills uh, paid. So, uh, you know, it would seem like an astonishingly boneheaded thing for the Biden administration to do, which I guess Greg means it's definitely on the table. (laughs) No, I think that's
1: right. Uh, I saw a lot of folks saying, wow, this is uh, going to be fun to watch the working class through their taxes pay for people's $250,000 in debt so they could get that gender studies degree. Uh, but let's let's have a little lesson in economics here. This Let me just repeat this part. Biden said he would forgive $10,000 in student debt for all borrowers and the rest of the debt for those who attend public college or HBCUs and earn less than $125,000 a year. So if you're scratching your head and trying to figure out how to get your kids to college, and this is on the table, you're going to take this option, right? Knowing that uh, if you meet this criteria and your kid doesn't make $125,000 a year out of the gate, they're going to they're gonna forgive most of that student debt. So you're going to have more and more people obviously headed to HBCUs and public schools, public universities and colleges. And guess what? As more and more people do that, fewer and fewer people head to the private schools And Jim, I see this as a very likely parallel to what happens if you try to pursue a public option for healthcare. If you constantly undercut the cost compared to the rest of the competition because of government interference, you're going to get everybody in that category and then the competition dries up.
0: Yeah, it is worth noting there are certain plans that have had at least, you know, mitigated a bit by income level, i.e. if you're making a decent amount of money, uh, you've got your law degree, you're now a successful lawyer. No, the federal government is not going to step in. And do as far as I can tell, Greg, there's no indication of this in Schumer's plan. It is 500 grand, no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances. Really going to be a tough sell, but uh, you know, we already saw Chuck Schumer thinks if they win the two Georgia Senate races, he's going to take over the world. So maybe he thinks that uh, uh, maybe he thinks everything is possible now. He's going public with that a little early,
1: I think. <laughs> <laughs> Georgia voters pay attention. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter podcast, subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's move on to our final martini now, Jim. And today is publication day for a fantastic new novel, Hunting for Horsemen, a Dangerous Click novel by, yes, Jim Garrity. It's the second in the Dangerous Click series. The first one came out uh, June of last year, which was Between Two Scorpions, which was a, an excellent read. Uh, I'm not going to give away any spoilers for two reasons. Number one, that would not be fair to you or the listeners. And number two, I haven't finished it yet, so I can't spoil anything even if I wanted to. But I'm about 100 pages in, and so far it's it's very, very good. And Jim, I have to think, based on the plot line here, which we can talk about, uh, this probably wasn't originally where you were going in the second volume of this series. But uh, as Law & Order used to say, you ripped it from the headlines a little bit and it came into a very fascinating
0: and terrifying uh, realistic plotline here. Well, uh, thank you, Greg. And I'll make an observation, no spoilers, but I'll just say if you listen to this podcast regularly or even intermittently, there are certain moments in the third act that you will get the joke and various other readers will not. Let's just say that there are certain rhythms, cadences, responses, phrases that occur that listeners to this podcast will suddenly look at that and say, I know what Jim's saying there. Ah, that's great. That's hilarious. And other people will just say, eh, okay, he decided to do that. So that's, that's a little kind of your Easter egg for, for listeners to this podcast. Uh, Greg, you are completely correct that I, I had this other idea. I actually had written the draft. I'd had people start reading it. It was going very well. And I, I was, someday we'll go back to that book. If you're wondering why the titles have an allusion to the number two and the number four, well, yes, there is a number three in there that I'll, I'll finish writing someday. But you know, it was, that one was about the idea of real life Cold War secrets that are kind of, uh, they've been publicly disclosed, but they're generally not known and were kind of baffling among them. The, uh, uh, the Dalai Lama being an agent for the Central Intelligence Agency for a couple of years. Yes, that's true. Um, but it just didn't, you know, when, when the pandemic was hitting, you know, it felt like the, the world was in a genuine crisis. Uh, this is the sort of stuff they make movies about. And so it just made the scale of that story feel just not important to what was going on in the world. I started thinking about what would my characters be doing at this time? And in all likelihood, they'd be sitting at home just like the rest of us. Because, you know, in case you're wondering, uh, there were a couple of of open source articles about this that basically said that the Central Intelligence Agency and other spy agencies had a really tough time operating during the pandemic because doing good spy work apparently requires leaving your house. Uh, It helps to have a lot of crowds to blend in with. It requires lots of international air travel if you need to get into another uh, uh, country. So the intelligence community was struggling with the same things. And people may remember me doing a lot of research into the coronavirus, pandemics, the labs in Wuhan, et cetera. And a genuine fear I have is that once we get on the other side of this, which looks like it'll be next spring, uh, is whether people look at this and say, wow, this virus managed to shut down countries in ways that you know uh, terrorism never did. You, know, you can blow up a building. And life still goes on other than immediately outside there. A virus hits. You know, As we've seen, you can, have sweet, you can basically shut down a country. And my fear is that various you know, uh, people with mischief in their minds would want to do this. But the challenge with bioweapons has always been uh, you, it's very tough to keep it from, from spreading towards your people. You've got one side. They've got the other side. You very rarely have a tough time. But we are making breakthroughs in the ability to, of, of altering genes and uh, genetic research and the ability to splice the DNA code you could theoretically engineer a virus that would only target particular genes. And you could do it as specifically as one gene. Uh, there was a fascinating article in The Atlantic all about how the Secret Service has to worry about the possibility of a biological weapon that is specifically targeted to the president's DNA. Or you could do it for entire ethnic groups. What they call it, the phrase the they're using is an ethnic bioweapon. The idea of you have one gene of a population you want to wipe out, you could do that. Well, in hunting for horsemen, you know, some sinister person who is mysterious, who's going by the, uh, uh, the nom de guerre hell summoner is basically offering rogue states around the world saying, I can do this. I can do this. And you can target a group. And as far as anybody would know, it's just a natural outbreak of a pandemic. And, uh, that's then. then the chase is on. Then it's got to figure out who is this person? Who are they going to target? What are they going to find? Um, you people who have listened to this podcast know that I may be occasionally snarky and sarcastic and uh, make weird, obscure references to pop culture. All of that is in there. Um, The locations, I try to pick the most weird and unexpected and uh, almost unbelievable but true-to-life, real-life locations. Uh, And once again, people who listen to this podcast will recognize the location of the final conflict and uh, probably see a certain perfect irony in there. Uh, so I hope everyone enjoys it. It's a lot of fun, a lot of research into it. Hopefully it kind of makes you, uh, you know, thrillers are great because a lot of people who will never pick up a book about submarine warfare read The Hunt for Red October. Almost every topic that goes on in the world can be, there's potential for a thriller in there. And this one really is, as I said, it's you know very much about what's been on my mind over the past year. Uh, it is not dystopian. It's, it's set in a world that is coming out from under the coronavirus, probably what our world's going to look like uh, sometime next spring, but it's, you know, the world hasn't ended, but we're all kind of climbing out from under this. And there's still a bit of a psychological hangover. And one of the things I kind of had to speculate was how the world will change on the other end of this pandemic. So, uh, hope everyone enjoys it. Hope everyone buys it. Uh, holiday season is coming up and, uh, you know, um, this will continue. And, uh, you know, it's been, the early feedback has been very positive, Greg, and I appreciate you adding your, uh, your words to that.
1: Absolutely right. Can't wait to finish it. A uh, lot to look forward to here. The plot is really getting good where I am in the, in the story right now. So again, it's Hunting for Horsemen, a dangerous click novel, uh, obviously by Jim Garrity. Uh, and if you haven't read uh, Between Two Scorpions, uh, get that too. I don't think you have to have read uh, Between Two Scorpions to appreciate Hunting for Horsemen, but it can't hurt. So get both if you haven't, if you haven't had a chance to, to read the first one. Jim, good luck with the sales, and uh, obviously we'll be talking again tomorrow. See you then. Looking forward to it, Greg. Thank you. Jim Garrity, National Review, also the author of Hunting for Horsemen. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at Tommy John. Really comfortable stuff. Underwear, t-shirts, loungewear. They got it all. TommyJohn.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We always appreciate your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day and join us Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.